Well, this morning we have Fred Sloan with us, a faithful minister for the Lord for many years. Um, happy to have, have you back with us this morning. Uh, if you would stand together um, and we'll read the word of the Lord. And found in Philippians 3, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it, nor am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything in, it, in anything you think otherwise, God will, re- will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us um, your word to guide and direct us, and I pray that you would open uh, that up to us this morning. Give Fred Sloan uh, words of wisdom as you speak through him to us, that you would encourage our hearts and convict us of sin. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. morning it's a joy to be here it's good to see such a big group today i know that folks have been sick and it's very cold and missed last sunday because of snow and various things but uh, it's a real joy for me and for us to be with you today Uh, if you have your bibles we're going to continue reading Uh, from where Mr. Barry stopped. We'll pick up at verse 17. I'd like to read our text this morning, which is Philippians 3, 17 
down to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this privilege to gather with your church, your saints, that we are here, but also by the Spirit, we are in heaven before the presence of God himself. We are here to give honor and glory to you, the honor and the glory that belongs to you alone. Lord, we do not come in our own righteousness, but we come through the mediation and the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we look into your word, that you would be pleased with our attention, that you would open it up, that I might have facility to in wisdom, explain your word that we may understand better how we ought to honor you and to serve you. We pray your blessing on this time now in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure most of you know that uh, I lead a ministry called Prison Discipleship Ministry. It's a ministry here in central Virginia. And we go, when the prisons and jails are open, we go in there and we teach Bible studies, we do evangelism. Uh, the prisons had started opening up last summer, and uh, we were able to go in until December 30th when they closed them all down again. So we don't really have any idea when um, they will reopen. We're encouraged that... Um, with the new administration, uh, the new Secretary of State is a lady named Kay James, who's been very active in the PCA for a number of years. She used to be our next-door neighbor, and we're hopeful that um, this being closed out won't be too long, and we'll be able to um, do, do even more uh, in the prisons. The jails have not reopened at all. Uh, I have been able to go into Henrico Jail West a little bit to visit uh, an inmate, a man who's a member of a PCA church, but has fallen back in sin and gotten into trouble. And uh, I've been able to go in there and see him. He's just been moved down to Riverside Regional, which he was not excited about that, but he's there. And um, his name is David. If you think about it, pray for him. 
But, you know, with the jails and prisons closed, God has opened up a very active ministry for us in what are called recovery houses. These are houses where men and women go when they are released from prison. Uh, Sometimes the judge, in lieu of a prison sentence, will send them to these houses, and they will be there for some of them up to a year. They will work on uh, drug addiction. They'll work on job skills. They'll work on saving money and being able to get back into life and to to live a productive life. And these are these are fine ministries. The one where we do the most is led by a lady who is a member of Spring Run uh, Presbyterian Church, Dr. Sarah Scarborough. We also are involved in a one called The Fix. It's out in King William County. And I will be out there on Monday mornings from 7 to 8 for at least the next couple months. I also go there on a Wednesday night. And it's a very, very fine ministry. It's a Christian ministry. But as we go into these houses and these places and the jails that we like to keep in mind two questions that I hope you keep in mind, because our primary task in this world is to evangelize. And these questions come from an old book. It's probably about 50 years old, developed by a man named D. James Kennedy. Some of you may know him well. Some of you may have never heard of him. But Dr. Kennedy developed these two questions, and I encourage you to write them down. And if you don't know them, if you do know them, to use them. The first one is, if you died today, would you go to heaven? If you died today, would you go to heaven? And the second one is, if you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you in my heaven, what would you say? If you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you in my heaven, what would you say? About two weeks ago in recovery house. It's, we call it the Dinwiddie House. It's on Dinwiddie Street in Richmond. There was a new man there, and I had a pretty good idea. He was a Muslim. He had a white skull cap, and he was very friendly, and uh, I struck up a little conversation with him, and I, I asked him, I said, are you a Muslim? And he said, yes. He was very proud of that. Uh, you know that Muslims like to talk about their faith, so, so I asked him, I said, can I ask you a spiritual question? And he, he was all excited about that. So I asked him, I said, if you died today, would you go to heaven? He's a very friendly, affable guy, and he had had a big smile on his face. But when I asked him that question, he lost his smile. He was very puzzled. He thought about it for a few minutes or a few seconds And he said, um, I don't think so. Now, he's a very dedicated Muslim. He's been one for, I think, over 15 years. You see, in Islam, Allah is very harsh and he's distant. And only those who keep the strictest discipline make it to heaven. You have to keep the discipline to make it to heaven. We were soon interrupted, and I didn't get a chance to talk to him further But I hope to see him again one of these weeks and talk to him more about that question. I think that's a question that's important to just about everybody you meet uh, to bring that up. But I want to tell another story. It's a very different story, 
but there's a similarity between these stories. This is from my own life. When I was a young teenager, my parents met a family who lived in a town nearby down in South Georgia. And this family was active in the Navigators. And you know that the Navigators have, they're really big on memorizing scripture. And so this family gave me a little packet of scripture verses and I memorized them and I really enjoyed memorizing them. And I got another packet and memorized more verses. I went to college and got involved in a scripture memory program. And then I began to realize, wow, I know a lot of verses. So I would take my pen and my Bible and say, John 3.16, I'd put a little square around the 16. Every verse I knew, I drew a, a square around that number. But then one day I had a very miserable experience. I was sitting there in church kind of admiring my memory work, and I realized, wow, Fred, you're proud. You're sitting here, and your heart's filled with pride. You're, you're really filled with pride with what you're doing. And I got very convicted. So guess what I did? I stopped marking verses, and I stopped memorizing Scripture at least for a while. Now, how are these two stories related? They're related because I saw in my own self a desire to find hope, to find peace with how many verses I had memorized, with how well I was doing in learning the Bible. I, I was a Christian, not a Muslim, but I was a Christian looking for peace and for hope in my own works and in my own righteousness. I was looking for assurance. This morning, that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about assurance. And I want to read you a quote. If you're not familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, I want to encourage you to go home today and look it up. That first question is extremely important. It says this, what is the only comfort in life and death. We could substitute the word hope. What is the only hope in life and death? And the answer is this, that I am with body and soul, both in life and death, and not my own, but I belong to, unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Now, that's a long answer, and it's a beautiful answer. But if you just remember the first part of it, what is your only comfort? What is your only hope in life and death? And that hope and that comfort is found in Jesus Christ. It's not found in you. It's found in him. It's found by looking outside of him. But we're going to look at this passage this morning, and I would say that the theme of it is to stand firm in the Lord. And we're going to distinguish between standing firm in your own righteousness and standing firm in the Lord. 
Because if you stand firm in your own righteousness, you're going to struggle. You're not going to have hope. But if you stand in the Lord, you'll have hope. Now, Paul says in this that we stand firm and we learn to stand firm by imitating the right people. Now, we know a lot about imitation. If you've ever been to a Little League baseball game, our kids used to play right out here on these fields. It's fun to watch the kids come up. If you know some about Major League Baseball, what do they do? They imitate the batters. The batter holds his hands up high, certain batters. They do different things. They imitate. If you watch HGTV, do you imitate? Do you think about your style? I I like the style. You know, some of this is Greek to me. I don't know very much about style, but I know a lot of you ladies know a lot about style. And you like to imitate the style. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we want to get to the root. What, What is the root of life that we ought to imitate? And Paul says, he starts out by telling us, that we should imitate him. Now, that might sound contradictory, but we'll see in a minute what he means by that. We're going to look at this text under three points. The first point is to imitate Paul, verse 17. Paul exhorts the church in Philippi to imitate him. And I've put a subtitle to that point. It's called the few, verse 17. Imitate Paul, the few. The second point is to beware of the enemies. And the subtitle is the many, verses 18 and 19. That first subpoint, you might look in that verse and you say, well, I don't see where he says the few. But you'll see in a minute that that few grows out of what he says there in verse 18, the many. It's a contrast between the few and the many. And then our third point begins in 3.20, and it goes to 4.1. And that's where our thesis comes out. He says, stand firm in the Lord. And the subtitle for that is the few, part two. So we're going to talk about the few in verse 17. We're going to talk about the many in verses 18 and 19. And then we're going to come back and talk about the few part two from 3.20 to 4.1. So let's begin to look at our text. Let's look again at verse 17. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, if you can indulge me just a little bit, I'm going to give you a little bit of Greek grammar In Greek, they uh, parse verbs and they decline nouns, so you know what the direct object is, you know what the subject is. And what that allows the Greek writers to do is you can move words around in a sentence for emphasis. So the beginning word in Greek in verse 17 is imitating me. The emphasis there is on imitating Paul. The word is the word from which we get mimic. The English word comes from this Greek word, but it has a suffix added to it. It means with. Uh, He's saying, be a fellow imitator. Imitate with me, he's saying. 
But notice he addresses the brothers. This is a corporate, this is a corporate exercise that in order to be the few, in order to imitate Paul, we need to work on this together. It's something we do together to grow in the Lord. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk. Watch them carefully to imitate them. Now, he uses this word walk. He's going to use it again in the next verse. But this walk means a way of life. How do you live? And we like to talk with the men in prison and jail about it's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life. You see, if you're, if you're walking with Christ and hearing the preaching of the Word and reading the Bible and memorizing Scripture, you're going to see sin in your own heart. It's going to come to the surface. It's not something to suppress. It's not something to run from, but it's something to accept. Lord, this is the real me. This is who I am. And it's in that process that God changes the direction of your life, not perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. And notice what he calls them to. He calls them to follow his example, the example that you have in us. Now, if you've been here through this Philippians study, you know that the book of Philippians is full of examples. In fact, it forms the structure of the book. He goes from example to exhortation to example to exhortation. And let's just review briefly those, a few of those examples in chapter 1, Paul talks about himself, and where is he? He's in jail. And that things are things going rosy? No, he's in jail. He's about to go before Caesar. But is Paul sad? Is Paul discouraged? No. Why? Because his focus is on the gospel. You see, what makes Paul happy, and the bottom line for Paul, is not about his own success. It's not about what's happening with Paul. It's about the gospel. If you remember back when I spoke on that a few months back, I said that joy flows out of love. You remember in the beginning in verses 9 to 11 in chapter 1, he says, I pray that your love would abound with knowledge and discernment. What is the knowledge that he wants them to know? It's the knowledge of Christ and of his example of how he is pouring his life out. And what really gives him joy is the gospel. Well, that's why those two questions are so important, because you'll find in your own life, when you start putting the focus on the gospel, on talking to others about Christ, you're going to find joy flowing out of that. In chapter 2, we have the example of Christ, who was with God in heaven, but he took the form of a servant. He became obedient. He became obedient unto death. Then Paul talks about Timothy in chapter 2. He says that Timothy is a like-minded person. He cares for their estate. Epaphroditus in chapter 2, he's risked his life for the good of the church. And then in Paul again in chapter 3, he talks about his past life and what a Pharisee he was. He had a model life looking at it from the outside. But he says those things that were gained to me they were lost for Christ. And he said, I've suffered the loss of all that. I like to characterize chapter 3. Paul is a man who has a resume of one word. Paul has a resume of one word. 
And that word is Christ. Who am I? Christ. That I may know him. For me to live is Christ, you see. His focus, he's a Christ-focused man. Now, what that allows Paul to do is to love. Paul is able to pour out love. He's able to serve. He's able to give his life away and to have joy. All right, that's our first point. Imitate Paul. But notice this text takes a very serious turn. Notice verse 7 or 18 and 19 again. For many of whom I told you often and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now again, with a little Greek grammar, the very first word in this sentence is many. It's an emphasis. Many, many, he says. The second word is the for, the reason that is driving this. Why does Paul want them to imitate him? He wants them to imitate him because there are many, not a few. There are many who walk, who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Again, what characterizes their life? Their life is characterized as an enemy of the cross of Christ. In the context of Philippians, what does it mean to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? It's not to be a pagan Roman. It's not to be some kind of a terrorist. Who are the enemies that Paul talks about in this book? If you go back to the early parts, we read about it earlier. Who is it? It's those who live like Paul. It's those who practice righteousness to create a resume for themselves that they can boast in and they can trust in. And Paul says, all of those things that I accumulated in my resume as a Pharisee, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was before the law perfect. But he says, it's all waste. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 23, the Pharisees, they have, they have a tomb, it's white. It looks beautiful, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. You see, they have a form of Christianity, but inside of that is the love of themselves and the love of their own righteousness. <coughs> now, as a pastor, I'm interested in that phrase there. Notice that he says, I have often told you and now tell you even weeping. How many times have you said, oh, I don't want to go to church. It's boring. They talk about the same things over and over and over again. Beloved, if, that, if that's what you think about church and preaching, perhaps you wouldn't be a good congregant in the church of the Apostle Paul because he says he talks to them <coughs> often about those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, he talks about how he preached the cross to those in Corinth. He says the Jews there, they were seeking a sign. They wanted some miracle to show them that Christ was God. The Greeks sought wisdom 
What does he mean here when he says someone is an enemy of the cross of Christ? I want you to think about some other passages. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says some of the scariest words in the Bible. He says, many will say to me on the day of the final judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and your name done miracles? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. They're enemies of the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul talks about worship. He's talking about how that in Colossae, there was the tendency to bring in false worship to the church. And thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Colossians 2, he's talking about the false worship and the tendency to bring false worship into the church. And he says, the problem with that is that it has no power against the flesh. You see, they're they're trying to get away from the cross and what it means to follow Christ. In Acts chapter 20, Paul talks about, he talks about to the Ephesian elders, those who are going to rise up from within the church. If you look at church history, the great dangers to the church have not come from the outside. They've come from within the church. And that's Paul's concern here. It's those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. They may not necessarily be members of this church, but they are influencing and they are impacting the members of that church. But notice the sober thing. What does he say in verse uh, 19? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He starts at the end, and he works his way back. What is the end of one who puts his hope in his own righteousness? who puts his hope in his own works, who looks to himself, his comfort in life and death is found in himself. Now, these are people on the surface who look good. They look righteous. They can be church members. But he says their end is destruction. Why is that? Their God is their belly. He's saying these are people that are given over to lust. Now, this is not the lust that goes down and, and, and participates in the vile things that are in the city and on the internet. No, this is a lust for self. This is a lust to have things my way and to glory in myself, to glory in my own righteousness. And notice what he says, backing up. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. They glory in things that they should be ashamed of. They've got shame and glory backwards. The things that they should glory in, which is Christ and his cross and the resume of one word, Christ. No, they glory in themselves. And Paul says that's a shame. Notice the final reason backing up. They have a mind set on earthly things. 
See, they, they want to be thought well of by people. And I'm not suggesting that we should be wild and we should go around insulting people and being insensitive to people. But I think we have to look inside, down inside of ourselves and think about, what am I living for? Am I living for the cross or am I living for myself? Let me ask you about your children. What are you living for in your children? You know, there are parents that, that they would do anything to have their children grow up and love them. And so what they end up doing is nothing because they, they oh, I'll make them mad. I'll make them angry. I can't, I can't offend my children. They'll grow up and hate me. Submit to you, that's a mindset on earthly things. Your children are given to you by God to raise, to love God, to know God, to bring to church, to discipline, to train, to train them up in the Lord. And I submit to you, there'll be many, many times when you will not be number one on the charts of their best friends. And the question is, do you have your mind set on earthly things? Or do you have your mind set on Christ? Do you have a resume? It's Christ. And son or daughter, the most important thing for me, for you, is for you to know Christ. And I know you may not want to go to church, or you may not want to do this, but this is the way we're going to do it, because we love Christ. See, we've let go of the resume. It's not about whether you like me or dislike me. It's about Christ, and it's about His glory. So let's go to our third point. We've looked at the few. Paul exhorts them to imitate him. We've looked at the many and their love of themselves and their being an enemy of the cross of Christ. Now Paul comes back to the few. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We have here at the beginning, we have what's been called, and you probably are familiar with this, the already and the not yet. Already, he says, we are a citizen of heaven. The world may not like you. The world may not think much of you. The world may have you in jail. But he says, we're a citizen of heaven right now. Do you believe that? And I think a good prayer would be, Lord, I don't know that I believe that like I should. Help me. Grow me in my understanding of the fact that I am right now a citizen of heaven. You see, you're not a citizen of this world, so stop, stop trying to please them. You're a citizen of heaven. Serve your Lord. Notice what he says, that we are a citizen of heaven. From it, we await a Savior. The Savior has not come. We have not seen the implications of the salvation that he is bringing. 
that he brings to us, either at the point of death or when he returns to this world. We have a Savior, and who is he? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, I believe, is a reference to the Old Testament Jehovah, Yahweh. He is the creator. He is the one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. He is Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. He is Christ, which means that he is the anointed king by God. Read Psalm 2, Psalm 110. He's seated on the throne in heaven, and you're a member of his, you're a citizen of his kingdom. But notice what else he does. He's a transformer. You know, our kids are little. I think they still have them. I don't know. You'll have to help me. You know, you'd, you'd have a truck and you'd wiggle it and turn it. And lo and behold, you have this warrior or you start with a warrior and you wiggle it and it transforms into an airplane. Transforms. But notice Jesus He's a transformer. He's going to change. Notice what he says, our lowly bodies. Now, I know a lot of you young people don't think like this because when I was your age, I didn't think like it too much either. But, you know, as I grow old, uh, I'm kind of like Columbus. I've become a discoverer. There are aches here, and there are muscle pains here, and there's, my feet don't work like they used to, and my knees creak. It's hard for me to go up and down stairs. Beloved, one of the gracious things God does for us is He allows us to grow old. Why does He allow us to grow old? Because He's training us to look outside of ourselves when you're young and vigorous and you can memorize verses and you can do these things for Christ and you're, you know, you're the cat's meow of spiritual leadership. As you grow old, things change. You can't do like you used to do. You can't be where you used to be. And God is telling you something. And God is working on you to show you something. And what is that? Christ. Christ. God wants every one of us to have a resume of one word. What is your hope? What is your only comfort in life and death? It's Christ. And God is bringing and teaching and discipling us in those matters. We have a phrase around our house, growing old is not for cowards. Think about the knees and the hips and the eyes and the hands, the gray hair, the lack of hair, the lack of what's under the hair, the memory. They don't work. They don't work the way they used to. The one who made you in your mother's womb, Psalm 139, is taking you down in order that he can remake you. He's going to transform this lowly body, and you're going to understand that. We begin to understand that. These bodies are lowly. They're temporary. They're going to die one day. But we serve a God who is great. You see how foolish it is to try to remake yourself with a resume so that people will like you? 
so that people will love you. And again, I'm not saying we should go around being obnoxious. We should seek to honor God. We should seek to incorporate the law of God in our life. Everything that is in us should be poured toward the kingdom, but not in order that we can remake a resume so we can puff our chest out and say, what a great person I am. I've got hope here. Look what I've done with my life. Beloved, I hope you live a busy life, a productive life. I hope you pour yourself into life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God's grace to me was not in vain. No, I labored harder than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. You see, when you let go of your resume, you can get busy. You don't have to worry about what people think of you. You can take orders from God. You can read his word and you can be diligent in that. And what happens when you let go of your resume? You begin to see who's for you. You know, I think sometimes we forget who we are as Calvinists. We believe that men come to Christ, women come to Christ because God calls them. But let me tell you, just as surely as God calls people, he sanctifies them too. It is his work, and that's what Paul is saying in his passage. By the grace of God, I am what I am. How was he able to do these things? Where did he find joy in prison? It was by the grace of God who worked in him. He gave himself to the kingdom. He let go of who he was. He let go of what people thought of him. He has a resume of one word. I asked this morning, what's the foundation of your hope? Where do you find hope? Think about that. Now, again, it's something to ponder because it doesn't necessarily come easy. God, God will show you. If you take that question and pray, Lord, show me my hope. Help me to see better where I put my hope. He'll begin to reveal it to you. And I can tell you this. It won't be a pretty picture. God is near to the humble. You see, when God shows you, oh, look, look, I have my hope here. I have my hope there. Lord, this is, this is me. It's not a pretty picture. He says, I know. That's, I saved you. That's what I died for. Put your hope in me. Create a resume, one word, Christ. Now, we come to the last verse almost as an afterthought. Therefore... Therefore, what? Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm in what? Not your own hope. Not your own righteousness. Stand firm in Christ. Put your arms around him and hold on to him because he is your hope. Stand there. Beloved, I don't know what the world's going to be like in 10 years, five years. I don't know. But there are winds that are out there that are troubling. There are things that, if you have your eyes open, they can be very troubling. And I think that God is going to give his church the opportunity to grow in their love for Christ, to build a strong resume, a resume of one word, Christ. The law brings us conviction. Hopefully, as we've gone through these things this morning, hopefully the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart and said, 
wow, I don't think I do this so well. That's, that's a good thing. If you ever go to church and don't think that, ask for your money back. Because that's what church is about. It's about the law of God so that we might understand who we are. But it doesn't end there. We're not the Pharisees who turn and say, okay, God, that's a mess. I'll fix it for you. No, we turn to the grace of God. We look to Christ. We look to our Savior who leads us to repentance, who helps us to repent, and who assures us in our repentance. We go back to where we started. The world is out there. there are, we tell people there are only two religions. There are, only two, there are thousands of names of religions, but there's only two. They boil down on the one hand to those who some form of their own works through their meditation, through their prayers, through whatever they do, they're trying to climb to heaven. They're trying to get up there to heaven. Why? because they want assurance. They want hope. The gospel is that God in the person of Christ came down, and he did what you could not do. He paid the penalty for sins, that he might take you up that ladder to heaven himself. Beloved, that's good news. And I hope that as you go about this week, you go about your life, that you keep these questions because it's at the heart of every man and woman out there, assurance. How can I know? How can I have comfort? The Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? I have a Savior. I have Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a Savior. We thank you that we have men like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and most of all, the Lord Jesus, that we can imitate. We can follow their example. We can begin to think like they think. Lord, we thank you for that. It is a privilege. Lord, the world is out there, as you said in Proverbs the wicked wander around like a man in a dark room. They have no idea over what they stumble. Lord, you have shown the light and you have helped us. Help us that we may let go of the fear of man, not brashly, but humbly and meekly to ask people, are you spiritual? If you died today, would you go to heaven? Lord, give us boldness there. We pray these things now in the name of the Lord Jesus, for his sake and for his glory. Amen.